Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. This morning we will be studying verses 36, or halfway through verse 36, through the end of the chapter, verse 50. John 12, verses 36 through 50. Please give your attention to God's word. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. When my children were in middle school, they were attending, all of them attended an independent Christian school, a good independent Christian school in the Philly suburbs. And like any independent school, you had in that school teachers, administration, and students that came from a wide variety of mostly evangelical churches. And so, as my children would go through the halls, they would hear, or in their classroom, they would often hear debates among students and teachers about things that we as Christians disagree about, things like creation views and end times views and baptism views and things like that. And so my children would often come home to me after a day at school, and they'd come to me and they'd say, Dad, what do we believe about creation? What do we believe about the end times? What do we believe about baptism? And I always had kind of mixed feelings about those questions. I mean, first of all, I was a little disappointed that they couldn't defend what they believe or didn't even quite sure what they believed and that they had to come to me and ask what we believe. More my failure than theirs, probably. But it was also very heartwarming to me that they trusted me to give them the right answers that they trusted that what I believe must be what the Word of God says and what must be true. 
And I wish that were always true, but I really did appreciate that they, that they trusted me in that way. And I think, when you think of the middle school age, it's a good transitional stage. You know your children can't stay there. They need to get to the point where they examine these things for themselves, and they investigate, and they, they come to their own conclusions and their own convictions. And you pray that the Spirit will lead them to all those right places. But the plain truth is that none of us come to our beliefs by the way of purely objective data. I have to say that, especially in this kind of university culture, when we tend to focus on the intellect and the academics and the data, the facts, and we sometimes deal with people as though just giving people the facts is enough, but we know that that's not true that people process information. We all have a grid, we all have a filter by which we process information that affects how we interpret the data. I came across a a scientific study recently that says that people think more objectively when the lights are turned out. Think about it. In the dark, when you can't see anything, you think more objectively. And just from experience, that makes sense, because when you see things, you start to react emotionally to things, and you don't think purely, you know, intellectually about things. And so, matter of fact, they found out in this study, interestingly, that the brighter the light, where you are, the more subjective your thinking and your decisions are. And all that does is illustrate the fact that we don't think purely objectively nearly as often as we think we do. That we process information with both our minds and our hearts. And the Bible makes clear that it's not just our emotions that affect how we interpret objective data, but more importantly, the Bible says, the spiritual state of your heart affects how you interpret data. Especially when it comes to the light and truth that comes from the word of God. As we come to the end of chapter 12 of John's Gospel... I mentioned last week that we have come to the end of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is that everything that Jesus teaches and says from this passage on, starting at the beginning of chapter 13, which we'll get to next week, everything that he says from this point on up until his trial and his crucifixion is said to his 12 disciples. It's a very personal, direct ministry to them to prepare them for their calling, to prepare them for his departure and his ascension so that they could take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I mentioned last week that if you were to look at John's gospel, at least according to John, the very last words that Jesus spoke to the public, to the crowd, to the masses, are the last couple of verses we looked at at the end of last week's passage, back in verses 35 and 36, where John quotes Jesus as saying, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. What great last words for Jesus to leave with the public. What's interesting is we begin to look at this week's passage What John is doing, he's reflecting, I think, at this point in giving the account of the life and ministry of Christ, and he's giving some editorial comments here about Jesus' public ministry. And particularly, he's zeroing in on the fact 
that so many of the Jews to whom he brought the gospel during his public ministry rejected him. This is a very disturbing view to the early church, to the apostles particularly. Really upset them that the Jewish people had rejected their Messiah. What did this mean? How could this be? And so we have here John's theological reflections upon that, and it's very reminiscent of the Apostle Paul's wrestling with this issue. You know how important this was to the Apostle Paul in the very important landmark book of the book of Romans, which is Paul's treatise on the intricacies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He devotes three chapters in the book of Romans to the issue of why did the Jews reject their Messiah. That's how deeply it concerned him and how important of an issue it was to him. Let me, just to give you a sense of the heart of Paul, let me just read to you the introduction to that section of Romans from the beginning of Romans 9. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. You hear his heartache as he reflected on the rejection of the Jews, of the truth of who Christ was and what he came to do. Well, John here, along with Paul, as Paul goes on in Romans 9 through 11 to deal with that, John here tries to, in a very short passage, reflect upon that. And he gives us some insight into something that's a great mystery. And quite honestly, it's hard teaching. Hard to understand because it's really beyond us, any of us, no matter how smart we are. But it's also hard because even to the degree to which we understand it, it's troubling. But it's important that we understand this. And what he's talking about is the progression of unbelief in the human heart. And there is a mystery here of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty and just how this all works together in this eternal struggle within man and the eternal plan of redemption of God. But Scripture gives us just enough that we need to know about these mysteries, about the progression of unbelief. First thing I want to point out is if you look at verse 36 of John 12, it says a remarkable thing there. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. From who? From the crowds. From the Jewish nation, from the public, for all those masses of crowds that had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover, he hid himself from them. Now let me put this in context. This is actually in the Holy Week. This is probably on Tuesday that this happens, that he has his last public words. On Tuesday. The Last Supper was on evening of what we would call Thursday, and then Friday was the crucifixion. So he had at least two full days. When he could have gone out among the crowds, done miracles, preached the truth, appealed to people to repent, but it says here he hid himself. And even that is a bit troubling. I mean, why would Jesus do that now, of all times? Why isn't he out there trying to reach as many sinners as he can with the few hours that he has left? 
And I think it just reminds me of something we've seen through the entire Gospel of John and what you see through all of the Gospels is that Jesus was never panicked by his calendar or his watch. He's never cramming to get his mission accomplished. He was always keenly aware of the Father's plan and the Father's power at work within him and the Father's timing. So why did he hide himself when he had an opportunity to continue coming and bringing his message to the crowds? That brings us to the first truth of God's judgment. And that is that continual rejection of the truth leads to divine silence. Continual rejection of the truth leads to divine silence. That's what John explains to us in verse 37. John says, though he had done so many signs, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. In the original Greek language that tense of that verb is very precise it's the idea of something that's ongoing and persistent in other words they were continually stubbornly unwilling to believe repeated and intensifying rejection is what John is trying to portray for us here I mean think of it Jesus had healed the lame and healed the blind he had fed thousands upon thousands with just a few few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. He had raised the dead. And these were all signs which pointed to the spiritual truth of who he was and what he had come to do. And yet, they didn't believe that he was God's son and the Messiah. And really, isn't that the sad story of Scripture from beginning to end, really, is that God performed so many signs for the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. It's the whole course of the Old Testament. And continually, they would turn their back on him and reject him. Their experience in the wilderness, where they kept rebelling and turning against the word of God in spite of all the signs that they saw, that's really the history of Israel. And that was certainly the history of Jesus' ministry, his public ministry. In verse 38, John quotes one, he picks two passages, two very, very familiar passages from Isaiah's prophecy. And the first one he quotes is Isaiah 53, there in verse 38. You know Isaiah 53, probably the best known of Isaiah's chapters. It's where all the detailed, precise, graphic, prophetic Literature is given to us showing us what the crucifixion was going to look like in extreme detail. And that's what we do. We tend to use it as as an apologetics tool to prove that 800 years before the crucifixion happened, God had told us in extreme detail. And, And see, we're using it intellectually. But you need to understand that when Isaiah wrote chapter 53, he was not giving an apologetics lesson. He was actually lamenting. And that's what you get in verse 1. That's what what John quotes in verse 38. Verse 1 of Isaiah 53 says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? You sense that same exasperation that John and Paul were talking about. We keep bringing the word of God to God's people, but they keep rejecting it. They keep not believing us. That's what Isaiah is saying. 
The rest of Isaiah 53, if you understand that, that this is a lament about the rejection of the truth by God's people, listen to the language of Isaiah 53. Speaking of the Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And of course, that's pointing to that during the trial of Christ, when he stood before Herod, when he stood before Pilate, when he stood before the accusations of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He refused to answer. He refused to speak. And that speaks to an eternal truth about God's judgment. Is that when you continually reject the truth over and over and over again, you will hit a point where God says, enough. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. It's the same reason Jesus hid himself two days before his earthly ministry came to an end. When we sometimes get angry with our spouse or our siblings or our children, sometimes we'll give them the silent treatment as an act of judgment against them. Well, God will certainly give the silent treatment to those who continually reject his word. The Old Testament makes clear that this God, the God of Israel, is a God who is patient and long-suffering and slow to anger. But there is a point where the cup of his wrath becomes full and he says, enough. And the first act of judgment begins, which is silence from the throne in heaven. The prophet Amos was sent to a difficult ministry, just like Isaiah was. And the prophet Amos was given this word from the Lord for the people of God in his day who had rejected the truth over and over and over again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. The judgment of silence from heaven. You don't want to know what one of the most ominous signs of impending judgment upon our own country and our own culture is? We might point to all kinds of horrific sins out there in the culture that are signs of coming judgment. You know what one of the most ominous signs to me is, and probably the more important one is, that we are not hearing the word of God proclaimed from the pulpits of our churches like we should be. Silence. From heaven. It's always the first step of judgment is that God stops speaking. And we're seeing it in our churches. And if we see it in our churches, we know that our land is in trouble. That brings us to the second stage of judgment, which is that God that continual rejection of the truth leads to what the Bible calls the hardening of the heart. If you move on down to verses 39 and 40, there's another quote from another very familiar passage of the book of Isaiah. This was one we read earlier this morning from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6 is so well known because it begins with that great vision 
that Isaiah was given when he was called into the ministry of the word. He was given a vision of the throne room in heaven and he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the angels were surrounding the throne singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Just an interesting side note. You notice a little comment that John throws, there, throws in there in verse 41. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who's the his and him that it's referring to there? Jesus Christ. He's saying that in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw that vision of Yahweh seated on the throne in all of his glory, he was actually seeing a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself in all of his glory. But actually the quote that Isaiah or that John pulls out from Isaiah there in verse 40 is actually taken from the commission given to Isaiah after that vision of the throne room in heaven. Remember Isaiah, after his sin was atoned for, he said, you know, send me. I want to go out and tell the people your word. And sometimes we stop reading that passage there and we end the story there. But actually the hard news comes in the next verse and that's exactly what John quotes here. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. God told Isaiah that your ministry is going to be met with complete, utter rejection. The people of God are not going to listen to you. It's because I have hardened their hearts. I have blinded them that they might not turn and repent. See what I mean? It's a hard message. We have to struggle with this, to understand this, because that's the second stage of judgment, whether you're talking about the life of an individual or you're talking about a culture. It's the hardening of the heart. John said, basically here in chapter 12, he's saying, if that happened in the days of Isaiah, that he brought the word of God to the people of God and they rejected it because God had hardened their heart, much more so in the days of Jesus, when Jesus himself came down from the throne and came to live among us and to speak the word of God to us and was continually rejected and rejected because the greater the light that you receive, the more it hardens your heart if you reject it. The best way to understand this dynamic, this processing of God's word that happens in the heart of a sinner is to go to the book of Romans again. In Romans 1, Paul helps us to understand the process in this way. You know Romans 1. He basically starts by talking about how dark and wicked mankind had become because God had revealed himself through what he had created, but even though God's presence and power was clear through what he had created, Man in his wickedness and rebellion had rejected the truth, rejected the truth, rejected the truth to the point where it says they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him and their foolish hearts were darkened. But what's interesting is that passage goes on, the very next three verses says this, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind. And what Paul is describing there is this second stage of judgment I'm talking about where God gives you over to your own sinful desires and the lusts of the flesh and your own destructive ways. He just lets you go the way that you would normally go without his grace. 
You see, the point that Paul is making there, and it's very important that we understand this, is that God doesn't harden sinners' hearts against their will. He doesn't do it against their will. He basically does it with their will. He turns them over to their will. He doesn't make them more sinful than they would be otherwise. He just stops restraining the sinfulness that's within them. That's what the hardening of the heart is. We are born slaves to sin. We are born with a, with a will that desires to rebel against God and desires the darkness. God restrains that within us and praise God that he does. Because none of us are, you know, if we're all born, as we're born in our natural state into this world, none of us is as evil as we possibly could be. Varying degrees of sin and wickedness and darkness within unbelieving mankind. But every one of us born into this world would be demonically evil if he did not restrain the wickedness in us. Now, how does he do that? There's several ways, but one of the most important ways that God restrains wickedness in us is the gift of a conscience. It's what Paul calls later in Romans the law of God written on the heart. That's an act of God's grace. It's an act of God's grace to any sinner, but particularly to us, that we have to live in this world, that it keeps people from being as diabolically evil as they would be, that we have a conscience. And what the conscience is, is this vague sense of right and wrong according to the law of God. There is this amazing agreement around the world in every culture about right and wrong, and that's the law of God written on the heart. But it's not just that vague sense and awareness and knowledge but it's actually an emotional and spiritual thing because the, the conscience is the ability to feel shame and guilt when you're caught up in sin. But what happens when God gives you over, gives you up to your depraved nature and removes the restraint of the consciousness so that you lose that sense of right and wrong more and more and more and you lose the ability to feel shame and guilt. Paul calls that, in the New Testament, he calls it having a conscience that's seared as by a hot iron. You know what happens when your skin gets seared? You don't feel anything after it's been burned. And that's what he's saying that happens with sin. When God removes that restraint on your wickedness, you stop feeling guilt and shame. And I said a moment ago that one of the most ominous signs in our culture is that God's word is not being heard in the pulpits of God's churches. But I think we're even farther than that because I think we are seeing clear signs of a corporate cultural hardening of the heart because not only are we calling wicked good and good wicked, not only have we lost a sense of right and wrong within our culture, but we have lost the ability to feel shame and guilt to such a degree that we celebrate and throw parties, and congratulate one another, and commend one another, and reward one another for doing the things that the Bible says is evil and wicked and wrong. I think we have some dark days ahead of us. I mentioned Romans 9, and what's interesting, when you bring up the subject of the hardening of the heart, and you think of Romans 9, you think of where Paul goes with this wrestling of why did the Jews reject their Messiah? Why did they continually reject the truth over and over and over? 
And Paul gets into the mysteries of what we call predestination, of, of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And, but he ends the whole conversation by talking about Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is such a great example of how the hardening of the heart works in an individual. Pharaoh, of course, was the king, the emperor of Egypt. And God sent Moses to him to bring the word of God and to do signs, just like Jesus, to do, bring the word of God and to bring signs. And Pharaoh rejected the truth from God over and over and over. He was blind to the signs, and that continual rejection brought judgment upon him. But listen to the language, and Paul points this out in Romans 9, of what went on in the heart of Pharaoh. Matter of fact, let me take you back to Exodus 7, which is the commission that Moses received to take the word of God to Pharaoh. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. And you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Now, again, from what we've already seen and what hardening of the heart is, you cannot say, well, it's God's fault that Pharaoh didn't listen to Moses. That's not what hardening of the heart is. But God withdrew his restraints upon the wickedness in Pharaoh's heart so that he became darker and more rebellious. And that's really the language. It's interesting, the language in Exodus. If you just follow the account from that point on, Moses comes to Pharaoh. He brings the word of God, and he performs the signs. He performs the plagues, which were amazing. And then it says in Exodus 8, verse 15, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen. Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to the word of the Lord. But then four verses later in in Exodus 8, 19, it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen. And that harkens back to what the Lord had promised. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Unless we have any any, uh, doubt about what that means, over in chapter 9, verse 12, it says the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen. And so both things are equally true. God hardened his heart so that he would not listen. Pharaoh hardened his heart so they would not listen. And there's that mystery, but all we need to understand is that Pharaoh did what Pharaoh wanted to do, and God just withdrew his common grace that restrained that wickedness in him. That's one of the great mysteries of God's plan of redemption, is that God's plan never fails. God's plan of redemption didn't fail because the Jews rejected their Messiah. Because The falling away, as Paul deals with in Romans, the falling away of the Jews led to the opening of the gospel to the nations and the spread of the kingdom of the four corners of the earth. It wasn't a failure of God's word. In Romans 9, 6, the very next verse after that introductory passage I read earlier, this is what Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all Israel is Israel. But the clearest picture of this, of how God, the rejection, the continual hardening of the heart and rejection of truth, how God somehow sovereignly in ways that we cannot understand in our puny human brains somehow he incorporates that into his master plan of redemption the most perfect example of that is in the cross the crucifixion of jesus christ listen to how the apostles preached about that and prayed about it in the book of acts first of all from peter's sermon in in acts chapter 2 he says men of israel hear these words jesus of nazareth a man attested you by god with mighty works and wonders and signs that god did through him in your midst as you yourselves know this jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of god you crucified 
and killed by the hands of lawless men. They were fully accountable. It was what they wanted. But yet God somehow incorporated their hideous act of killing the Son of God into his eternal plan of redemption. And then over in chapter 4, the early church prays about this and listen to how they understood it. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Rejection of the truth of God's word does not defeat the plan of God. It actually ends up accomplishing his purposes. But we need to understand that God's judgment comes first in silence, second in the hardening of the human heart, thirdly comes the final declaration of judgment. And that's actually alluded to in that last section, verses 44 through 50 of John 12. What we have here, it sounds like Jesus speaks to the crowds again, but what almost every commentator believes is that this is actually just a summary that John gives us of the basic themes of Jesus' teaching. It's kind of like the cliff notes of Jesus' public ministry. Do you still use those cliff notes? We used to use those to cheat when they were told to read a book and do a book report. No. I'm glad. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't look it up. Cliff notes are, are a bane upon public education. But, uh, you know, what, what, John, what John is giving us here is just a basic summary, the main themes, the ABCs of Jesus' public ministry. And here are the main thoughts. First of all, Jesus' words are the Father's words. If you trust in Jesus, you trust in God. Secondly, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father because they are one. Thirdly, Jesus is the only true light and the only way out of darkness. Those all sound familiar, don't they? Jesus has been preaching this message from the beginning of God, John's Gospel. But then in verse 47, he brings up judgment. Again, he's, he's giving you things that Jesus has already said, but notice what he focuses on. He says, Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He said that very clearly back in chapter 3. His first coming was not to bring judgment upon sinners. His first coming, praise God, his first coming was to bring salvation to sinners. And his first mission was to die for our sins so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God and delivered from the penalty and power of sin. But, he says, he goes on to say, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. You don't have to wait till the last day, the day of judgment, to find out whether you are guilty or the state of your heart because he's already spoken. He's already given us all the light that we need. And we will be judged by the words of Christ on that day. Jesus told a parable that beautifully depicts this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to these words. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. Simple question for you this morning. How is the word of God affecting your life? God's word will never fail and it will never return to him void. And John Murray says, if God's word doesn't quicken, 
if it doesn't enliven, if it doesn't bring life and light, then it must deaden. And I want you to understand that that's the burden I carry into the pulpit every time I get up here to preach the Word of God because I know that the Word of God is living and active and powerful to transform. But the plain truth is that when you hear the Word of God proclaimed, insofar as what you hear from the pulpit is the Word of God, it either quickens or it deadens. It either softens your heart or it hardens your heart. The one thing it doesn't do is leave you unchanged. That's a heavy burden. But it's a joyous truth because that's the only hope for a sinner who's lost in the darkness and the sin. Is that the word of God, if you believe in the words of Christ, you believe who Christ was, what he came to do, and you make him your Lord and Savior, then that's the way to life and the kingdom, the eternal kingdom. But if you continue to reject his word, he'll first withdraw it from you. And that's actually a scary stage because most people who have had the word of God with God withdrawn from them don't even realize it. They're so busy pursuing all their interests and sins and things in life, they don't realize that God is not speaking anymore. They're still dancing and partying and marrying and giving in marriage and going on with life, and already, long ago, God stopped speaking. The thing is, if you don't recognize it, then what sets in is that hardness of heart, which brings you to the point that John actually describes there in verse 39, therefore they could not believe. Jesus once said something that was kind of mystifying. He said, any sin you commit can be forgiven you, except one. And that one sin that he said that cannot be forgiven, what we call the unpardonable sin, he called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And when you think in the context of when he said that, he was talking about Pharisees who were saying to him, you cast out demons by the power of the evil one. And Jesus looked at their hardened heart. Their heart that had continually, repeatedly, intensifyingly had rejected his word. And he said, basically, you're committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's job is to testify to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And when you reject that truth and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the point that your heart becomes so hard, you can actually commit what Jesus called the unpardonable sin where your heart has become so hard that what John says here is that you cannot believe. You cannot repent. And that is an unspeakably horrible place to be. Dead men walking. It's amazing to think that there are people who are already that hardened in sin that they're already lost even before they physically die. It just speaks to the power of the word. Do never, never, never take the word of God lightly. John addresses a group of people, and I think he does this to give us a warning. In verses 42 and 43, he points out some among the Jewish believers, Jewish leaders among the Sanhedrin. Some of them actually believed in Jesus, or they professed faith in Jesus. You never know with John whether he means real saving faith or just that they were drawn to him, that they were... That they were Uh, believing some of his teachings but it says that some among the Jewish leaders believed in Jesus but they kept their beliefs secret because they feared being kicked out of the synagogue they feared being excommunicated from Israel 
Basically, they feared what Jesus talked about earlier, is losing their lives in this world. And so they would not confess Christ publicly. And I think that what John was trying to say to them and to us is that's a very dangerous place to be because you're loving the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And you may find out that God stops speaking to you and that your heart becomes hardened. Some appear to have come over, overcome their fears. We know about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. It appears they did become genuine believers and went public later. But being secret about your faith is not a place you want to stay. None of us hear the word of God objectively. Understand that. No matter how smart you think you are, you never hear the word of God objectively, purely intellectually and logically. The state of your heart, the spiritual state of your heart, will determine how you interpret what you hear, whether it's life, the aroma of life, or the stench of death to you. But understand also that unbelief is not overcome by evidence or by persistence. It's only overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. So pray that the Spirit will open your eyes, open your ears, take away your stone-dead heart and give you a heart that's living and seeks after him and look to him to save you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God, as awesome as it is, as powerful as it is, both to bless and to curse. Father, I pray that we would come out of this place today with hearts that are softened, ears that are opened, eyes that are opened. Lord, we, apart from your grace, would not be believing today. Lord, thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you for our salvation in Christ. And we trust in you to keep us walking by faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.